I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Few figures in Israeli politics, or in global politics for that matter, arouse such extreme levels of both antagonism and die-hard support as the man the world has come to know as Bibi. Benjamin Netanyahu was the inheritor of a long dormant dynasty known as the Revisionist Movement, which eventually developed into the Likud, Israel's current ruling political party. Every human who rises to such levels of fame and infamy becomes, to a certain degree, mythological. But not too many people know the story of the man behind the myth. Today, by many, Bibi is seen as the inexorable protector of Zion, the ultimate diplomat, the only man fit to lead the Jewish people. By many others, he's foregone all ethical and moral boundaries and is destined to doom our nation. But before Benjamin Netanyahu was all these things, before he was prime minister of Israel, he was a kid, enchanted by his older brother Yoni. He was a furniture salesman, a two-time divorcee. He was Ben Nittai studying architecture at MIT. Today, embroiled in corruption allegations and staving off a world of condemnations, it's hard to see Bibi as much else than transcendent good or evil. But that won't stop us from trying. Anshel Pfeffer has been writing for the Haaretz Group for over 20 years and has recently published his biography titled Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. We're very excited to be joined by Anshel Pfeffer to discuss the man, the legend, Bibi. Okay, guys, before we get to the episode today, let me tell you about our friends over at the University of Hamburg. The University of Hamburg is holding the first international camp for robotics for girls interested in STEM fields. Now, if you know anybody or if you uh, have kids who are interested, if you know a teacher, you should spread the word about this camp because it is an amazing amazing initiative. It's happening in Hamburg. There's going to be uh, female speakers from the industry, from these fields, you know, engineers, entrepreneurs, some of the most successful leading female figures from these fields. There's actually going to be a couple of Israeli entrepreneurs, a couple of Israeli leaders from these fields. They are speaking. Uh, the girls are going to get the chance to build their own robots. I mean, this is a crazy, crazy uh, chance for these girls to follow their dreams. So if you're interested, 2njb.com slash robot check out uh, their website that'll redirect you there to njb that's the number two njb.com slash robot this podcast is made in collaboration with the jewish journal would you say you um admire bb in any way i don't i wouldn't use the word admiration but i certainly appreciate the place he has in the life of Israel, and I think by now we can say the history of Israel, and it's not simple just to say that, even though I think it should be, because we we still have a lot of people, this kind of feeling that Netanyahu is an aberration, a guy who suddenly came out of nowhere, and many people who don't really like him are hoping he'll disappear just like he arrived, and the moment he'll go, Israel will somehow go back to what it was once upon a time, and this is just... This Netan- these Netanyahu years are a sort of wrong turning that Israel has taken along the way, and it's going to 
go back on course the moment so the moment Netanyahu leaves. Just a passing rain cloud. And I think that I think that that's the wrong way to look at Netanyahu. I think it's the wrong way to look at Israel. And one of the things I set out to do with the book is not just to appraise Netanyahu's life, but try to understand how he's an integral part of Israel, what Israel has become, how he how he has played a role in in taking Israel in that direction, but how he really is a part of of the story of this country, and not just him, but his family, the ideology that he represents, and it was, and I, and I go even further and say that this ideology, this revisionist Zionism, which is now the the Likud's ideology and the ideology of a large part of the Israeli right wing, and therefore a large part of of Israel, has always been part of Zionism. It wasn't the mainstream. It wasn't the main. Uh, stream within the movement but it was always there and in many ways it rep- it was even represented earlier than zionism by the writers who were there before herzl's so it's important to, to uh, when we you know when we're describing netanyahu and netanyahu's role in israel also to, to remember that he represents something which was always very present here mm-hmm. can you can you break some myths about bb Well, I'll start with the myth I, I, I break at the very end, and this is I did with a very uh, uh, technical way of data anal- analysis, is the myth of Netanyahu as a warmonger. Netanyahu is seen around the world as someone who can't wait to go and launch wars against the Palestinians, the Arabs, the Iranians, etc. And when you take... Uh, when you when you break down the numbers and you take every Israeli who's been killed whether it's a soldier or a civilian killed in, in violence in wars in terror attacks etc and you work out when you know, when that happened and under which prime minister and then you try and do an average of every prime minister's period in office how many Israelis were killed under that specific prime minister's watch Netanyahu has the lowest casualty rate of any Israeli prime minister not just it's not it's not just a, stist, a statistic trend this is a major margin Netanyahu is lower by a lot so Netanyahu either he's been incredibly successful in fighting wars or if we actually look at the period he's been in power he hasn't had any wars he's had One major uh, operation in Gaza, a, a, a protective edge, and a sm- slightly smaller one before that. But in the t- more than 12 years he's been in power, he hasn't had any big wars. He hasn't... He chose not to go to he war. He chose to because he does not believe in having big wars. He's not that kind of a prime minister. And we've seen prime ministers much more to the left of Netanyahu who have, ha- have chosen or had been thrust upon them, but they've been... In that situation whereby Netanyahu not just chooses not to make war, he avoids that kind of, of major confrontation. We've seen it in the way, in the very low-key he, cho- way he's chosen to deal with the Syrian issue over the last seven and a half years. He's, he's, he, he always prefers to do secret operations, sending the Air Force, Mossad, Senate, Matkala, whatever, other special forces. He doesn't like sending in... brigades and divisions of armor and infantry that's never been his way and partly it's because he himself as a Sarat Malkal officer has always preferred that very kind of small unit which exists almost from outside the army's framework he doesn't trust the big army he sees the big army as being clumsy not very clever he's never been He's never had really good relationships with the generals of the, uh, with the general staff of the IDF he's always had much better relationships with the heads of Mossad and, and Shin Bet sometimes not so great but on Works the whole strictly under him who are strictly under him and at least while they were in office usually he had a better relationship with them 
many of them afterwards uh, spoke out against him. But that's the kind of muscle that Antonio likes to use. It's very small, pinpoint, preferably secret use of Israeli muscle. So that's one myth. He, he talks up a big game. Though. What, what does he see the role of the army as? Like well, Netanyahu doesn't believe that Israel should be a pacifist country. Yeah. He hasn't cut back the defense budget. He obviously believes in Israel having that kind of power at its disposal, but he prefers not to use it mm-hmm. as, much as, he, as much as he can because he, doesn't want, he, he believes that Israel's power is very important, but he believes in projecting that power. He believes in using that power for deterrence, not necessarily actually wielding that power if it can be helped and at the same time he doesn't want to make peace obviously so he's not a peacemonger he wants to use the israeli deterrence to keep the palestinians at bay to make the arabs and the iranians afraid he wants them to believe that israel may attack at some point but he has never done he's never chosen to use the army in a big way except that one case in gaza in 2014 where he did send in the army and he was almost threatened and and if if we look back at those days leading up to the ground offensive in protective edge he was almost forced he was almost dragged into that conflict by the general staff by his own ministers and by events but he he held back as much as he could before sending in the ground forces and then other other myths Worth other, breaking? Other myths. Well, I think there's an, an, the, the, the big myth about Netanyahu, and there's a myth that existed, I think, from the moment he came into politics, is that he's basically American. And you know, the, that myth is built on the fact that, first of all, yes, he was actually once upon a time an American citizen. He was born in Tel Aviv in 1949, but his mother was, Ameri- was an American citizen, and he... And she, so he became a citizen as well. He only relinquished the citizenship when he became a diplomat in the 1980s. And of course, he lived in America as a teenager. He he studied as a student in, in his 20s. Most of his 20s was spent in America. And then in his 30s, he was a diplomat, first in, in Washington and then, and then in New York. And he certainly speaks flawless English and he knows how to speak to Americans on television or on the stage very well. And he brought in the American style of politics to Israel. He he arrived on the scene when the first primaries were being held in Israeli politics. Before that, there was usually much smaller forums. It was either committees or just the central committees, but not party-wide primaries with tens, even hundreds of thousands of people uh, voting. So he brought that kind of American-style campaigning also to his first national campaign in 1996 when he brought in uh, Arthur Finkelstein, the the famous uh, American pollster who passed away last year. But the the use of American-style politics and his own use of the media to project this, this image I think makes a lot of people say he's more American than Israeli. And what I try to do in the book after reaching the, the conclusion myself through my own research and through talking to people and through looking at his life story is uh, to break that myth because I don't think he's an American. I think he made a very conscious choice when his parents took him to the U.S. at the age of 13. For the, uh, He was already there at the age of nine for, for a couple of years, but again at the age of 13 for five years. And they, the family, they, they never wanted to call themselves what, was then called Yordim, people who'd left Israel for good. They were always saying, one day they'll come back. But there were no plans to come back. The, 
The parents, Ben Sion and Tzila, wanted both Yoni, the eldest son, and Bibi, the next son, and Ido, the third son after him, all to remain at the age of 18 in the U.S. and go and study in Ivy League uh, colleges. Yoni had been accepted to Harvard. Bibi had been accepted to Yale at the end of high school. Both Yoni and Bibi made a conscious choice, and perhaps Bibi did it because it was easier for him to do it because Yoni had set the precedent. But in, in both the cases, the parents applied pressure on their sons not to do it, but they both left the U.S. at the age of 18 on their own and flew back to Israel to join the army. And that was a very conscious choice. It wasn't something that you could say, oh, they just did it for appearance's sake. You know, the family was quite... Most of, the, both, most of both their parents' family already lived in the U.S. Most, most of Netanyahu's family, most of Tzila's family were both living in the U.S. They didn't have that many relatives left in Israel. But they went back because they decided this is where their life is. And they went to the most difficult military courses possible. Yoni went to the paratroopers. Bibi went to Sir Matkal. They both became officers. It was very clear this is what was where their life was going to be. They both married at a young age Israeli women. They returned to the U.S. to study. Yoni didn't, didn't really like it and went back to rejoin the army. Bibi stayed for longer. But I think it was it, it was pretty clear that they saw their future in Israel. They were married to Israeli women. They were going to come back to Israel at some and not too distant stage, whether after their studies or whether they'd already acquired a job. But I I think that it's I think that Netanyahu's life was his trajectory was to go back to Israel, and, that, and I, that's what I haven't met anybody who really knew him well who had the impression that he's going to live in the U.S. for the long run. And the they also, in their past, in their childhood, I remember in your book, it says how they said about Americans certain things. Their impression of Americans wasn't good. Originally. Their impression of Americans, well, they, they felt that the Americans... Shallow. ...were shallow and soft and lacking in any real ideology or direction in life. They, right. they, they saw the fact, the, the fact that many of those around them... And that was, this was... The t we're talking already these years, almost the, at the beginning of the Vietnam War. None of the people they knew, or very few of the people they knew, knew in Philadelphia, were, were hoping or planning to go, in, <laughs> to go and serve in the U.S army well for them it was obviously clear that they're going back to israel and serve an israeli army and they felt much much you know they felt very superior to their contemporaries at high school in in philadelphia and and yet they, and, and 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 they made very few friends there as well right and netanyahu bibi went back every summer he worked throughout the school year in philadelphia to make money waiting tables washing dishes so he'll have enough money to fly back on his own his parents only once when he was there flew back back during his high school period back to Israel for a vacation he went on his own every summer he spent the entire summer vacation in Israel with his friends going hiking playing around whatever he but those were his friends it wasn't the kids he was in school with in America right. he he is still though somewhat enamored with American uh, politics or history or ideology I mean you spoke of how he you know one of his pastimes is just kind of sitting and reading books about the American founding fathers and Uh, and he's you know a free market capitalist and he's he is he does have some kind of affinity towards something american no, he has he has, he has major affinities for america he's obviously he's more of a republican conservative yeah. type of american but i think what he sees in america is Uh, is is a, is a long, much longer history than Israel, a much bigger society, a much bigger body of of history to learn and read from. I don't. I think he sees Israel still as being a young, and almost I'd say in some ways unfinished country, and therefore 
he feels that he's he, part of what he's doing is, is building up the Israel's you know Israel's reservoirs of thought and an ideology and I don't think he feels that there are too many people in Israel that he can somehow be inspired by because Israel's got a short history lots of Israel's uh, a, a long a large part of Israel's history and also the Zionist movement history it was under the control of left-wing socialists who he doesn't see any anything to be lear learned from and he has read the major texts of Zionism his father edited some of them you know, Herzl's writings and, and Jabotinsky's writing and earlier than that Singer and Nordau these are stuff that Netanyahu's already read you know he's, he's a very deeply read person and I think when he wants to expand and read more about history and read more about uh, economy and thought he looks to America that's that's his that's his base mm -hmm. but I think what he derives from that is is our thoughts and ideas which he's incorporated into what what for him is a very Jewish and very Israeli nationalist ideology and I think despite being an atheist or at least very secular if not an atheist he he's very much a Jewish nationalist as well Let's let's. I want to take a yeah. step back to uh, because as we mentioned in the beginning, that not many people really. I mean, once a, a, a someone like Bibi becomes Bibi, then you don't. You know, you, it's hard to imagine Bibi as a baby. Let's say baby. So Bibi. can you can you describe baby Bibi? I think one of the, but, but but you said something really interesting here is that it's hard to think of Netanyahu before he became Netanyahu before yeah. right. Bibi before being Bibi, and the interesting thing about Netanyahu is that he's spent very little periods in his life as a, as a regular civilian and he's barely ever lived in Israel as a regular civilian because he was already at the age of 30 at the age of 33 he was already the deputy number two guy in the embassy in Washington that's a very, it's very senior uh, a job for a, a guy yeah. in his early 30s and 34 35 he's already, he was already a candidate to be the ambassador to the UN 38 he was already deputy minister in the government so from his early thirties, he was he was already a senior diplomat. He was an officer into his into his early twenties. The very short period in which he'd left the army and before you could say came, went back into public service. That's just one decade of his twenties. Most of that time, he was he was a student in the U.S. The short period towards the end, after his uh, after Yoni uh, was killed in Entebbe, and after after he, he he separated with his first wife Mickey in his late twenties and early thirties. That's the only period in his life in which he was actually working for a living. At, for a while in Boston and then after a certain period in Israel. It's a very short period of your life to be a civilian, not right. to you know, not to be in the in the midst of military life, which he was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Being in Sarah Matkali was in a lot of very intensive operations and he had a lot of responsibility at a very young age. And then once again in his thirties uh, as as a diplomat. So it you know, the Bibi we know is the Bibi he's been most of his life. Yeah, you think that, that shaped him? He's you know the, the, the man is, is 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 68. Most of his life he's been a politician, and then another chunk of his life he was a diplomat. Another chunk of his life he was a he was a he was a professional soldier. So you know he doesn't really have any period in which he's not. The Netanyahu who has the responsibilities, or, but his Netanyahu, adolescence who's was became shaped. A, a public figure. Sorry, but his adolescence was shaped. So he by... adolescence was shaped. Well, the fact that he his adolescence was sort of on the divide between Jerusalem and Philadelphia, and younger before that New York and Long Island. Netanyahu 
his you know, his life his adolescence was very unsettled in that he was very aware that he's living in a place where he doesn't want to live and when he was living in jerusalem he was obviously very aware from a young age that his father wanted to go to america because his father couldn't get the kind of job he wanted but who were his parents Jerusalem. so okay so bencian is, is a historian was died a few years ago at the age of 102 Tzila lived you know didn't have a job she worked uh, she, she 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 studied for to be a lawyer. She finished her her degrees both in Jerusalem and then in London, uh, but she devoted her life to to her husband's work and to raising the three sons. Um, and that this um, this this feeling that they very much the sons very much wanted to be part of Israel, part of Jerusalem, part of afterwards the army and building the state. Well, at the same time, their father couldn't wait to leave and find uh, what he was looking for, which was some kind of academic renown, some a job with the, that would give him what he felt was, was a recognition that he deserved because he felt that he was one of the leading his Jewish historians of, of his generation. He didn't, and he didn't, get a, he didn't even find a job in the Hebrew University, which was the only university at the time which, uh, here in Israel. He got a good job as being editor of the, of the Encyclopedia Hebraica, but that wasn't the kind of job he wanted because that, in that job he was editing other very celebrated professors where he wanted to be one of those professors. So he felt that he would never be recognized in, uh, in, uh, in Israel, as, as they say in Hebrew, there's no prophet in his own town. So he had to go to America to do that. So this was... Netanyahu recalls this to this day. He said in interviews, "This was a trauma for him. This was a really traumatic period in which he felt he was being torn away from his home, and not just from his home, because they were very. Those were the years that Israel was 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 in, in its early infancy, the late fifties, where they were building a new society. And as a as a young teenager, Bibi and Yoni certainly felt that this." Exciting! They were living in exciting new times in 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 the in a young state. While their father didn't want to be part, wasn't part of it. He was sitting in his own in his in his study at home, editing and writing, and he wasn't part of any organization. Didn't generation any kind gap. Of, sorry, it, it, it's not just a generation gap because they could see around them. They were living in a, in a, in middle class Jerusalem. Around them were lots of families and lots of fathers of the same age of of their own father who were senior officials right. and, and, and ministers and, and officers and lots of other, and, and, and prominent academics and writers and so on, while their father was a guy stuck in his room. He was making money by editing the encyclopedia, he was making good money, but he wasn't someone that anybody really knew and he wasn't taking a part in building the in building the new state. And they really felt not just a generational gap, they felt that they wanted themselves to be part of it. And they were in their own high school there in, in, in the in, in, in Cub Scouts and so on. They were part of it. They were preparing themselves for the age of eighteen when they would then become soldiers and be part of uh, of defending this young new state. And their dad wants to take them away from all of this. And that that's probably the experience which formed the you that know, I think, first of all, he felt that he had to show that he has a role to play, that he really needs to, to, to be, to, first of all, first in the military and then in, others, in other circles, in diplomacy and politics, that he has something to give. He, this burning need to prove that he has what, not just what to contri- contribute, but to lead. Also, this in country. a sense, maybe to compensate on how his father was pushed also out. To compensate, also to prove to his father, I think. He wanted to prove to his father that he can bring 
he can bring him, uh, you know, he can make a contribution himself, which will be important. His father told him, sit and study, and then maybe when you'll be, uh, after you'll do your PhD, you'll be able, you'll add something to, you know, because his father was a Zionist. He believed in the state of Israel. Right. But, he did, but, it, but he thought that his son should be an intellectual elite. He said, you know, go and sit in an Ivy League college and improve your brain and improve your knowledge, and then you'll be able to contribute something. He, felt, he wanted to show you could contribute something much more concrete. At the same time, he wanted to comp- his father as well so he took on his father's ideology 100% he didn't have any arguments with him. his argument was with how to implement the ideology not not over the ideology itself so at the same time what he took from his father was this need to take the ideology and to put it into more concrete uh, terms and uh, and and actions and then sorry just another point and then there's living in the shadow of Yoni which also may be Shaped well, that's his really, adolescence. That, that's the one question. That's, that's, that, that's the big what if of Netanyahu's life. Netanyahu always has said many times that until uh, Yoni was killed in 1976, he had never thought of going into politics, he never thought of public life. He had wanted to be an architect. And yes, he was studying architecture. But we also see that before Yoni was killed, from, the, from 1974 onwards, he was already active on campus as a Zionist advocate, as a Hasbara, as a Hasbara guy. He was going out to synagogues and Jewish federations around New England and, and giving lectures. He was even being paid by the, consul, the Israeli consul general in, um, in Boston to go out as a sort of semi-official representative. So he was already doing the kind of thing that he's been doing ever since before Yoni died. And the people who met him at the time and knew him at the time had no doubt that he was going to, he was going to go into politics or, or diplomacy or both. So the, f- the fact that Yoni's death obviously shook, shook Bibi very, very deeply. He was the closest person to him, the person he had most loved and someone who had loved him very much. So, you know, Yoni had, like I said before, he had blazed the trail for Bibi by leaving Philadelphia at the age of 18 and joining the army. It, it sort of allowed Bibi to do the same, even though his father tried to stop him as well from doing it. But not, but, and it also catapulted Bibi into the public uh, uh, eye because Yoni was dead and there was no one else to represent the family of the hero, the big hero of Entebbe. Now, Entebbe was not just an incredible special forces hostage rescue mission. It was also something that happened at a very crucial time for, for the Israeli society. It happened less than three years after the Yom Kippur War. The biggest trauma in the last 70 years of, of, of Israeli history and not just a trauma, but uh, a moment in which Israelis' trust and confidence in their strength and in the IDF had been shaken. And Entebbe was not just Entebbe, it was the moment which allowed Israelis once again to trust the IDF and to feel that actually we do have the best military in the world, the best intelligence, the best air force. Entebbe was a corrective, a very important corrective for for Israelis because there was only 200, only, there were 200 soldiers on the ground in in that uh, in that operation uh, at Entebbe Airport, but it was as if the whole nation had gone there and somehow redeemed it itself. And Bibi uh, was a stand-in for the, the for the person who personified the operation, which was Yoni. Now, every almost everyone who was on the operation, could, their names and faces couldn't be published for many years because they were pilots, they were Sarah McCall officers and fighters, the kind of people who the military censorship doesn't allow to, uh, to their names and pictures to be seen by the media. So almost at, with the exception of Dan Shomron, who was the overall commander, who was the brigadier general, his name could be published. 
no one else's name could be published except for one person, Yoni Netanyahu, because he, he was dead and therefore there was no problem saying who he was. So, for the for, for, Bibi, in a way, even though he hadn't been in the operation, was also by default a face of of the operation even though he had been in mit in boston when when the entire operation happened he was the face of the family and people kind of whispered yes he was also in that unit even though even though he didn't say so in public and bibi was also the moving force behind the commemoration, commemoration. of yoni which was like no commemoration of any of the 24,000 idf soldiers who have been killed over the last right. seven mm-hmm. years and israel's no shortage of, of of war heroes no one has been has, has received right. the, the attention of Yoni so Netanyahu. So I want to ask you about that because you, you write a lo- quite a bit of, in the book about Yoni Netanyahu and the commemoration and how much the Netanyahu family put into kind of memorializing his name. And I, I'm wondering if you think, because you discuss there are certain uh, uh, kind of contradictions in stories that, that generals, uh, that soldiers and, and witnesses who were there on the ground gave as opposed to uh, uh, Netanyahu's uh, younger brother, Ido. And, and a lot of conflicts. And I'm wondering, but you also describe it kind of in a way that, that, that um, gives the idea that maybe they used it to, or Netanyahu used it to catapult his career. And I'm wondering whether you think it was really a cynical kind of use of his brother's death to catapult his, his political career, or, or I don't know, maybe they, they really believed these, you know, alternate, uh, I don't know, stories. I, I can't say what Netanyahu actually believes happened on the ground in Entebbe, but there was certainly, uh, uh, immediately when the there's the four Hercules touched down in Israel and the, and, and the hostages came off and, and they brought off Yoni's body on a stretcher, myths began to be made at that moment. And... At the beginning, it wasn't something that you could blame anyone for because the, the family came back to sit you know, for the for the funeral to sit shiver here in, in in Jerusalem, and Yoni's comrades, his, his commanders and his soldiers, came to the shiva and they started telling the family what Yoni had done. Now, Benson had never been aware of how important his son was. He knew his son was an officer. He knew that he was the commander of a brigade of a of a unit. You know, the Seret Matkal people didn't go home and say, I'm in Seret Matkal. They didn't tell their parents and friends what they were doing. Certainly not Netanyahu family when the parents were living 10,000 miles away in the U.S. So he never had any real idea what Yoni was doing. Now, Bibi knew because Bibi had been in the unit. Actually, Bibi had even been before Yoni in Seret Matkal because Yoni was a paratrooper. And then Bibi kind of recommended him for Seret Matkal. Did Ben Sion know that he was in some kind of elite unit or did he just he, think he was the, a regular he, he soldier? Knew, he obviously knew it was something very special but he didn't really know how important. He had no idea. He didn't really think about it very much. It wasn't... It he was, did it, beg it, him to come back to America. He begged him to come back and he came back after a few years and went to, finally did go to Harvard. It feels like in a sense and only they lasted, knew. only lasted one year in Harvard. They, they Yoni was told them I'm doing something very important but they didn't realize how central Seret Matkal was to to, to Israel's security and how important Yoni was and 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 this suddenly came to Benson like a major shock and like people do in this situation he immediately had to compensate so he suddenly made this image in his mind of Yoni not just being an important field commander he was the commander at Matkal it's an important job but he in his mind he suddenly built Yoni up as this incredible philosopher warrior of like King David and Moshe Dayan and Judah Maccabee all rolled in one. Which today is the 
concept of Yoni, like, you know, well, the pretty uh, widespread uh, concept. Uh, 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 let's say that we see Yoni as, as a larger-than-life figure. Right. And that, was, and that was, I think, a very natural and very human thing for a father to, you know, to feel. But Bentian took this compensation and that this mythologization of, of, uh, of Yoni to much incredible... I don't know, every... I mean, you know, I've been a journalist for over 20 years. I've, I've interviewed hundreds of, of families who've lost their sons in, in combat. It's, you know, it's something that, that, that a lot of us do, and a lot of us know families like that. And there's always... Every family wants to see their son in, in the most favorable, heroic light possible. So right. there's people gloss over mistakes which may have been made. People make the son into an incredible upstanding thing, which is the most natural and human thing for any family to want to do. But they took it to, in, to incredible lengths. First of all, they wanted to basically say that the whole operation had been, uh, had been planned by Yoni and led by Yoni. That just technically wasn't the case. Sarah Malkal did the, did the central mission of going into the terminal and taking the, and, and killing the, the terrorists and, and, and taking the hostage out. But it, the Sarah Malkal was only one section of, of, of what was happening there. There was the Air Force who had to actually bring the people there, which was an incredible logistical feat. There were units from Golani, the units from the paratroops who were securing different parts of the airfield there was a the, uh, very complex uh, intelligence operation which preceded it. There was a very complex planning operation. Sergeant Malkal had, a, had a, a small and very important section of that, but it was only one was, section of it. Yoni who, was only involved in the planning in the very last stage. He wasn't even state. around. He right? wasn't even around. He was, he was on a, diff a different uh, Sergeant Malkal business yeah. in Sinai, and he arrived less than 48 hours before the operation. He wasn't in charge even of planning Sergeant Malkal's part, just of the very... Last stage. You claim he had psychological issues as well. By I that point, I don't claim that the pe people who were who were involved in certain at the time and people who were Yoni's contemporaries and commanders know that. And it was Yoni Yoni's future as the commander was was let to say the least in the balance, if not already over. But it, right, and happened, and and Yoni never came back, and then it never happened. But um, who was the main force behind driving this this narr this opposing narrative in the, in the Netanyahu family? Was it? It Yo, was it, it was, it was, was Ben Sion, but but since Ben Sion was this otherworldly figure, and he didn't know how to organize things, you, Bibi became the, the guy who was the, the contractor, and there was a third person called Shimon Peres. Right. Now, Shimon mm -hmm. Peres wanted as much of the limelight of Entebbe as possible. Shimon Peres had a rival called Yitzhak Rabin, who was the prime minister, who naturally managed to get, take most of the credit for himself. And Yitzhak Rabin deserved most of the credit because it was his responsibility. And if things had gone wrong, he would have been one who was blamed. But Peres had been part had been a major part of the decision-making process, felt, in some, you could argue justifiably, that he was losing his own part of the credit. Paris found a way to get in on the action by befriending the Netanyahu family and pretending as if he had known Yoni, which was, wasn't true. Yoni had briefed him. It was someone else who had briefed him about the operation before. But Shimon Paris, uh, who was then a defense minister, managed to take a large part of the credit. He, by... By, by linking himself to the Netanyahu family, he was the one who decided that the operation would posthumously be renamed Operation Jonathan and not Operation Thunderbolt, which was the name of the operation originally. Yeah. And he was the family's um, enabler in taking over the myth of, of Entebbe. Now, did Bibi use it cynically? I'm sure that Bibi really felt he was doing the right thing for his parents his, and, for his, and for the memory of his brother. Did it serve Bibi incredibly well in catapulting him into the public eye and 
kick-starting a political career at a very early age. That's also true. I think Bibi would have been a politician, quite likely Prime Minister, with or without uh, the halo of his dead brother. Uh, do you mm. think that he still maybe thinks to himself that Yoni would do a better job? Yoni is better... Th- will always be better than me. You know what I mean? Well, the family is, you know, Ben Sion is, and Tila has said that, kind of, used to say that sort of thing. Um, for fans of Lord of the Rings, it's very much a Boromir, Faramir, <laughs> Lord Denethor kind of, uh, kind of dynamic That's here. That's amazing. That, you, that, that, the, that the eldest son was killed and, and the father feels that the youngest son is not as worthy as the eldest son is. Right. But, if, but any serious assessment of Yoni Netanyahu's personality will prove to you that the man was would not have been a good politician and probably would not have succeeded in going much further than Commander Sayyid Matkal in the army. If you look at other commanders of Sayyid Matkal, there were those who went to the top, like El Barak, he's the, you know, he's the, the most uh, uh, classic example of a Sayyid Matkal guy who, after Sayyid Matkal, made himself into an incredible, incredibly good politician. You need to be a very good politician to get to the top of, of the IDF. It's not just being an incredibly good soldier and officer. You have to be a good politician. Right. Yoni didn't have... No, nothing that we know about Yoni from his contemporaries, from Yoni's letters and from anything... Interviews that he he didn't really give any 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 real interviews, but people he spoke to in his short life, and he died at the age of thirty. You have to remember, nothing indicates that he would have been a successful general or politician. So this thought that he would have done better than Bibi, he may have been a cleverer guy than Bibi. He may have been not from a, our perspective, from Bibi's perspective. I don't. I, no, you know, You're the biographer of him. Bibi has <laughs> said how much Yoni was the most person he most admired, and everyone loved Yoni. And he would be prime minister. Right. Bibi said that no, Bibi actually said that uh, he said about, exactly. when Yoni was still alive. He said that El Barak will be prime minister, and Yoni will be Ramatkal, oh, right. chief okay. of staff. Yeah. So there, these and also these were the two people that, that Bibi most admired. He used to call El Barak behind his back the wise man, uh, and this is at the time when they were all in their twenties or early thirties. So you know there was this whole dynamic of it. these are the people that Bibi saw. As his, uh, as his elder brothers, it was elder friends who were very successful, but it sounds like I think that Bibi has long ago uh, lost sight of anyone who could who could be a, a leader instead of him. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, to a like up until a certain point, Bibi. I mean, wasn't ambitionless, but it sounds like his ambition didn't surpass the people that he looked up to. Meaning he saw these other figures, his brother and Ehud Barak, like you're saying, as the future leaders of the state. When do you think that that point is where he said to himself, it's, you know, I'm the next I'm going minister. to be prime minister. Well, some people who met him in the 70s already or early 80s have claimed that he told them, I'm going to be prime minister. So he obviously thought already at least when he was a young diplomat in, in the early 80s, that he's going to go into politics. And we, and we can see how he was planning to go into politics. We can see how, how he timed you know, his moves to be ready for the 1988 election. He already left, <clears throat> let, let, you know, he left the civil service, he left the Dipl- diplomatic corps at the end of 87, just on time to get into the Likud, to run, in the, to run for the list. So he was obviously planning his career by his early 30s, very, very meticulously to be ready to go into politics. He was, he'd already lined up donors. He had 
you know, he'd he, he'd learned how to how to appear on television he had learned how to run how to run a campaign he'd look you know he was there in the reagan era which is sort of like the beginning of sort of the latest modern period of uh, of american politics he he was studying that very closely and it was quite clear what his plans were and in, and every time a could any kind of senior could member or committee member would come to, would pass through New York. People would make sure to invite him to his office at at the at the, at the representation to the to, to the UN to come and sit on the benches of the of Israel's U, uh, delegation in the UN General Assembly. So he was very, he was already he was building up fr from the mid eighties. There was no question that he was building up already his his contacts with the Likud with an eye up to going into politics. So I think that it was very clear from an early age that he saw himself as, as getting very far very fast mm -hmm. and it's quite go amazing going all the way but, but you put it you put it i mean after definitely after yoni's death well we know much more about what happened after yoni's death and, and, and he was in a position to do things after yoni's death but i think that we certainly see that he was interested in politics before that we know from his conversation with his friends that he talked with them about politics already in his teens and he and he was very very forcefully putting forth about how the at the time it was still labor it was long before begging had won in 1977 he was he was talking about how mapai the government then was in his eyes woefully inadequate even though they built the state even though they had won the wars he saw the the economy as being very backward and it was quite backward especially for someone who, who was spending time in the u.s and coming back and forth and seeing you know the life here and the life you know nowadays you know we're sitting in tel aviv and you're looking out the, the skyscrapers and we can fly to new york the the quality of life between Tel Aviv and New York, it's not as not the, the the gaps aren't that noticeable. Right. Then you you felt that you were going back, if not to the third world, second first, certainly to the second world, especially yeah. in the eighties, right? Uh, we're talking even the in the sixties when Bibi was yeah, yeah. when Bibi started flying between every year the between, you know, between Philadelphia, and they had a very comfortable life in Philadelphia, a suburb, nice house, to the little apartments, no air conditioning, no cars, mm -hmm. uh, uh, taking bus, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, these crappy buses, to, uh, which only come once <laughs> This is still the, the this, case. This, this <laughs> a, it was a very, very different life, and he, he certainly felt that, and he still, and that sort of, I mean, to me, that really makes his decision to come back on his own, despite his parents' express will, much more impressive it shows that he made it a conscious choice to be part of this place but he also was saying at the same time i think israel has to be run differently he was thinking about the economy he was thinking about the the, the wider geopolitical issues and not just about zionism versus li versus living as an american jew i i really want to take us just in the little time that we have left to the present and uh, if you want to read what happened the amazing way he came to power just read the book we'll post links uh on the podcast page but in the present the fact is reading the book it you know the incredible story really particular man uh bb is is depicted uh, in your book and uh smart and and ambitious and talented and the statistics that you say about him and the myths that you broke for the us statistics that we can see about israel during the time he's prime minister yes. the growth in the economy and right. i'm not a netanyahu voter exactly but so, but, but, but that's where but, i'm getting it but, but you have to but you have to admit that during his time as prime minister israel's situation has improved now the argument will have to be and that will be an argument that people like me writing biographies will make and historians will be making in the future about whether this is thanks to him or whether it's thanks to his predecessors 
and he's sorry, been in power for ten for he's almost been in power ten years. For ten years in one stretch, and together <laughs> with the first. It's getting pretty been, hard to. Been, uh, you, you could argue that, his that, that, that you have to say that this is due to him, and that and he needs to receive some of the credit. And yet, but so many can, people hate he, him because of the Why? feeling that he is squandering this. He's feeling that Israel could be in, in, on a, on a, in an even better place if it wasn't for the for Netanyahu's policies, and and not just in a better place from the point of view of its GDP or the fact that there's no major war happening and and, and international relations with the Far East and. Other parts of the world are improving. There's a feeling that Israel's not going forward. There's a feeling that Israel can go forward in in more major ways than just growing the GDP. And the, the ways that many Israelis want to go forward is to feel that we're no longer under under the same kind of existential threat that Israel was in its in its first decades. And there's a, Israeli many Israelis and the Israelis who don't really like Netanyahu and feel that we would be better off without him want to feel that Israel has turned the corner. In it, it's no longer this uh, weak or not even strong, but no longer this endangered species. That has to all all the whole time as Israelis say live on our swords, because we if we don't then we'll have to eat our sword. There ha it has to we, you know, there there has to be a moment. Some Israelis feel many Israelis, perhaps that we can let down our guard and we can calm down and we don't have to. But live that this doesn't kind of, that doesn't explain the hatred. Of, well, Netanyahu has assumed the role of the person constantly saying to Israelis, no, you can't calm down. You can't let down your guard. You have to be vigilant. You have to be ready. You're always under danger. And if you don't stay tough and stay on guard, then someone's going to come around and slit your throat. That's that's Netanyahu's historical. And he sees it And that who way. likes to hear that? No one likes to hear that. And Netanyahu sees it as his thankless role to do that. And that's why, and that is what, you know, whenever he's asked, how do you want, because now there's people asking him in interviews, how do you want to be seen? Basically, I want to be seen as a man who who, who guarded Israel, who, who ensured Israel's uh, prosperity and survival. He sees uh, that role. He sees that there's one, one person needs to be constantly saying, guys, you have to be ready. You have to make sure that the Iranians aren't going to come tomorrow night and kill you all in your beds because that could happen. They want to do that. And whether or not Israel has to be as vigilant as that, that is a it's a role that a lot of people are not going to thank him for for fulfilling, and that's why a lot of people don't like him. And I think there's a there's a more nuanced argument to be made that yes, Netanyahu has has done a decent job in uh, ensuring Israel's survival and enhancing its prosperity. And yes, there are threats to Israel. However, Israel is has been in the last few years, and you could argue from the. From the from the end of the uh, from when the from when the Iron Curtain came down and the Soviet Union uh, collapsed and there was no longer a, a major power supporting the Arabs and the Arabs kind of became more open to recognizing Israel in, in the region. You could argue that from the early nineties, Israel already had an opportunity, which was the attempt of, of the Oslo process and there were other attempts more talked about uh, to finally bring an end to this cycle of war and peace, uh, of war and ceasefire and replace it with some more prolonged peace and the feeling that Netanyahu by his ideology and by the way he sees the world as, as always being against us we always have to be ready to respond to the threats is not allowing us to take that opportunity and finally reach some kind of agreement with the Arab world and with the Palestinians who live in the same little corner of the world with us, that Israel has never had so many opportunities to do that, and Netanyahu insists on squandering those opportunities. 
So that's, uh, I, I think, uh, if you want to end it with why so many people don't recognize Netanyahu as being Israel's greatest leader, I think that would be the, the clinching argument. Maybe, maybe he'll read the book and then... Uh, I think you have been informed. And what, did, uh, what was his impression? I haven't, that, that I haven't been told. But being his biographer now, what would you assume he'd say about well, it? Well, I think uh, that there are parts that he'd certainly like. I know there's one part, well, there's like an essay I wrote for Haaretz about uh, his ideology. I wrote that uh, just before the book came out uh, for Yom Atzimut, for the 70th anniversary of Israel's independence, and uh, that suddenly was copy-pasted onto Netanyahu's Facebook page. So I think he liked that. Uh, I, so I think he likes the bits where I appreciate his ideology and how he has worked very hard to, to fulfill the, his, his vision. I probably doesn't like the bits which are more critical. So <laughs> I think that that's why I haven't heard from him because he, do, yes. he doesn't want to say that stuff that he liked and stuff he didn't like. I think he's, he's going to keep it uh, at that. Also, he doesn't want anyone else writing his biography. He wants to be the guy at the very end of his very long career who's going to make, get a lot of money from an American publisher to write his own memoirs. But so. only after he does our podcast, of course. Uh, is, have you invited him already? We're, we're working on it. <laughs> no sources have told us that he's interested yet. <laughs> We don't have any sources. I'll, I'll, I'll recommend. I'll recommend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Should have written it in your, in your book. Recommend by an Haaretz journalist. That would, <laughs> no, that I'll, would I'll, rec I'll recommend him to, to come and do it. Okay. So, getting the book, how can people get it? Uh, well, Amazon, uh, if, I mean, if you're in Israel, obviously, you know, if you're in America, uh, in the US, it's an old bookshop, you know, good bookshops, obviously, uh, in the UK, Canada as well, Name Amazon, the and the rest of the uh, online uh, sellers, if you're listening in Israel, it's, it's on sale in Stamatsky from next week. What's the name of the book once again? Uh, what's the name of the book? Oh, BB, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin and <laughs> <laughs> Finally. You could probably Here recite the fourth chapter Word by word, oh, but the me, I'm title... Already, I'm already thinking about my next book. I'm, not, I'm trying to forget. <laughs> awesome. So before we go... Uh, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, jewishjournal.com. Um, have you heard of them? Yep, of course. Yeah, so Jewish Journal, uh, guys, check it out. Uh, Daniel Barron, Ben Shapiro, David Suisa, jewishjournal.com. Yeah. And we accept donations, guys. So if you like what we do, please help us. Go to our page at 2ngb.com slash donate and throw some money at us because we need it desperately. Thank you so much, Anshul, and good luck Pleasure. with the new book. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you.